0: Welcome to the Debit This, Credit That podcast with Wheeler Accountants located in San Jose, California. In this podcast, we discuss how to solve accounting challenges in both your personal life and your business. We take an energetic, tech savvy approach to solving accounting challenges that steal your focus and your time. Now, onto the show with your tech savvy accounting experts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Welcome to episode 25 of the Debit This, Credit That podcast by Wheeler Accountants with your hosts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Today, we're going to do another Q&A session with, with uh, questions from our clients that we get in here at Wheeler Accountants, um, You know, mostly tax-related. Now that we're in tax season, we're pretty busy, but we love giving answers to tax questions and helping our clients out. Before I get started, though, I do want to, again, put in a good word for the Damn Cancer Foundation or the David Andrew Madden Foundation. It's a 501 charitable organization dedicated to providing financial assistance to young adults diagnosed with cancer and also to fund innovative cancer treatments and research. You know, we formed the foundation in 2008 after my good friend David Pumadden passed away from complications resulting from complications from treatment related to uh, his osteosarcoma or bone cancer. We swam together at UCSB and continued our friendship after college. And shortly after graduating, at the age of 25, he was diagnosed with osteosarcoma. There are a lot of charities out there, they focus on cancer generally or they focus on children with cancer and they get a lot of support and funding, but one of the most underserved groups out there is the young adult age group and that's where our foundation aims to help. Cancer diagnosis after you graduated from school, you're just getting your financial feet underneath you is an incredibly devastating experience, not just physically, but financially and emotionally as well. Our foundation provides financial assistance for a lot of costs that are not covered by insurance whether it's gas or the cost of parking at the hospital, travel to and from, rent, groceries, utility bills, overnight stays. These are all things our foundation helps to cover that aren't going to be covered by insurance. Since 2009, we've raised over $1.2 million to more than 300 individual recipients, and we provided grants totaling $500,000 to those young adults. We've also funded $150,000 towards clinical trial at uh, USC for an innovative non-invasive cancer treatment. Please consider supporting the Foundation by making a tax-deductible tax deductible donation at our website, wwwdam and please follow the Foundation on social media, at damn Cancer on Twitter or on Instagram, at Dam underscore Cancer, as well as on Facebook. All right, shall we get into the
1: questions? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of questions pouring in this time of year, being tax season and all. Um, So we've uh, selected some of the the questions that I think would be really relevant to a lot of our uh, individual clients. Okay, our first question is, I'm trying to get my arms around the new tax laws and the 20% deduction on pass-through. The new rules are not crystal clear to me. Does it make sense whether it's a sole proprietorship or an LLC or an S-Corp? Not sure what the impacts would be on income. Any thoughts here would be appreciated. Well, one,
0: we're all trying to get our arms around the new tax law, so it's, <laughs> it's not a, not easy stuff. The pastor deduction is a new deduction Congress put in place. With the new tax law, they lowered the corporate tax rate substantially from, used to be 35%, and now it's 21%. And so with that decrease in the corporate tax rate, they wanted to make sure there was an offset for small businesses available. Otherwise, everyone would just shift into a C corporation, and that wouldn't really, you know, they, that's not the intended result of the, the Tax Act. Right. So they added this 20% pass through deduction on your income where you get to take a 20% deduction on qualified business income. That's the, what the term is called. It's it's after adjusted gross income and itemized deductions but before taxable income is my understanding. This all impacts 2018, so it's not a 2017 Thing. This is all starting okay. January 1st, 2018. And the devil, of course, is in the details. Congress is going to need to do some technical correction bills to get some of the details in there. And IRS is going to have to pass the Treasury's going to have to pass regulations giving guidance and you know pronouncements and rulings and that kind of stuff. So there's special rules around it. if your income's above a certain level, you start to lose the benefit of this deduction if you're in a specified type of business, like a specified service business. So that includes accountants, lawyers, doctors, people like that, or what it says is anybody who's, I think, principal skill is like their reputation, basically, and their own personal efforts, which is this very vague, broad term. <laughs> that is vague. And that's why they need to do all the special rules later on. But it, it also applies to like consultants, too. And then if you also go over certain income thresholds, you have to meet other tests to actually qualify for the deduction, no matter what type of pass-through it is. And there's one based on the amount of W-2 wages that you're paying to employees. And there's a part of it that's based partly on that and partly on the unadjusted basis of property and the activity. So there's all these nuanced limitations. But one of the easier things to figure out is if you're below around, I think it's 315000 or or like just above 300000 joint income, none of these exceptions that start to phase out the deduction matter. So if you stay below that amount, you should be able to get the 20% past your deduction. doesn't matter whether you're a doctor, an accountant, or a lawyer, or it's a real estate business, or you have no employees, or you're a consultant, whatever, you're going to get the 20% past your deduction when you're below that threshold. So being below that is definitely something to aim for. Got a lot of clients now that are maybe looking at doing some consulting now rather than being a W two employee because they have a lot more tax benefit for write-offs and that kind of thing. And if they're in semi retirement mode anyway, they don't necessarily like need to make a lot of money. If they can stay below those thresholds, they can get the twenty percent write-off and that will help. So basically you get a twenty percent deduction. And I think I read that it ends up being an effective tax rate of like somewhere in the mid twenties, you know, when all is said and done, you know, it, it equates to four fifths of your pass-through income being deductible. The second or four-fifths of your tax, taxable income from your pass-through being taxable, basically, because you can exclude 20% with that deduction. Okay, that makes sense. I'm probably not even explaining it great because it is super confusing and it's brand new, and I'm sure I'll get better explanation in the future. And the other second part of the question was about the type of entity. Um, it doesn't matter if any pass-through entity which doesn't pay its own taxes, basically, is an easy way to remember it. So a sole proprietorship, an LLC... S-Corp, a partnership, none of those have an entity-level tax, and every all the taxes paid at the individual level, all those count as pass-throughs. So the only thing it doesn't count for is the C-Corporation, which they got the extra benefit of the reduction in the corporate tax rate instead. So any type doesn't really matter as much. Contrary to what people were kind of gathering in the beginning, you do not need to go out and rush and set up an LLC or incorporate with an S corporation or set up a partnership with someone or anything like that. I think the, the same stuff we've talked about before in the podcast where you don't want to jump into forming an entity if you don't need to. And, you know, question number one, do I even need an entity? That still applies. You don't need to have the entity to get the, the pass through deduction. So don't go rush to create one. Don't go to legal zoom and set up an LLC because you're signing yourself up for all kinds of fees and minimum taxes and that kind of stuff in the future. And it's difficult to unwind not difficult, but it can be you know take some money and effort to unwind, so don't rush into anything, which is basically what we're telling all of our clients right now. all this stuff is brand new uh you know there's there's lots of things that haven't been explored. for instance, if you have a business that maybe maybe we're an accounting firm, but we also have a side business where we're doing like some sort of i t like resale stuff or something, do we carve that part out of our pass through income, and does that get the deduction? but our accounting part doesn't, and none of this stuff has been tested yet in the courts or in regulations or IRS rules or audits or anything. It's all very brand new. So would not jump into doing anything immediately. But if you do have a pass through and you are staying below that 300,000 or so range of gross income, I think you're going to see a benefit. And we're, we're running that scenario through our tax software for all of our clients. This tax season, we're, taking a look at what their taxes under 2017 would look like under the new tax law in 2018, all things being equal. And there's definitely some some losers, but there's a lot of winners too, you know, with the path through deduction or with the raising of the AMT exemption quite a bit. So uh, most people are end up being better off, some pretty significantly, and they'll probably be happy when they're doing their 2018 filings. But again, don't rush into anything. And you know, these are good things Instead of a meeting with after taxis and talk to us and really explore the best avenue forward.
1: Sounds like there's still more to come. So we will uh, a lot more to come. We'll revisit that.
0: Yeah. And we didn't cover the pastor deduction in our first podcast on tax reform. That was just focused on the business stuff or the individual stuff mostly. So the next podcast we do on tax reform, probably in the next couple of months, that one's going to focus more on the, the uh, business side, including the pastor deduction. So we'll get a little more nuanced and detailed on that in the future.
1: Great, thank you. Hey Wheeler, we are considering buying a Tesla Model 3. And our business is a real estate loan car for our agents. Um, They don't have any lease options. Questions are, can we take a loan and bill it to the corporation? Or should we go personal, then create contracts to the corporation? Should the corporation just buy it outright there seems to be some nice personal tax incentives of ten thousand dollars, which seems positive to
0: me. Yeah, there's a a good question. They they were asking about buying a car, either basically what it boils down to the question is should they buy in the name of their business or personally, but they're going to use the car for business. So in any in any business with the vehicle rules, it whatever deductible boils down to the business use percentage. So you have to track your total mileage on the car and then how much is used for business. What the actual title on the car is doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, This client has a corporation that they run their realty business through, and he's asking if they should buy it and then title it in the name of the corporation or personally. You can buy the car personally and then basically contribute it to the corporation as a capital contribution and start writing off all the costs and everything inside the corporation. So having title in the name of the corporation isn't required And in fact, it's probably harder a lot of times to get financing for the car or, you know, dealing with insurance policies and that kind of stuff to have it in the corporation name. I think you're adding complexity there. It's not necessary for tax purposes. So you don't need to do that. People usually don't. He's asking about, you know, trying to get creative. Basically, do you buy it personally and lease it back to your business and that kind of stuff? You don't need to do any of that. That creates it more complicated because then you have a rental of personal property and your personal return, and you're having rental income there and it's it's, it's all confusing it all all boils down to how much do you use it for business in terms of percentage and then how much can we write off the personal tax incentives thing that he was talking about is the you know federal tax credit for buying an electric vehicle plug-in vehicle 7500 bucks for the federal one for the tesla model 3 and then there's a $2,500 rebate for California. The rebate actually is not a credit we claim on the return. That's something you apply for yourself and get a check from California. That'll reduce the basis in the vehicle, so for business, we can't write that portion off as depreciation. We have to reduce it by the credits received, including of the $7,500 credit, and that $7,500 credit also uh, can apply to the business, too, but um, it's easier to claim it personally, and things sometimes. So <clears throat> um, I would just buy it personally, and then contribute to the corporation on the books, just make a journal entry to put it in there and start writing it off on the business is, I think, just the, the easiest way to go about it and, and least headache.
1: And just to clarify, so if he paid $45,000 for the Tesla Model 3 and then have the, the combination of the $7,500 and the $2,500, then his basis in the vehicle would be $35,000 and that's what he would be contributing to the business.
0: Right. Yeah. And that'd be what we base depreciation off of and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Great. Makes sense. Thank you. It's probably going to take him a little while to get that Model 3. I hear there's quite a backlog. (laughs) Yeah. Our next question is, when is a primary residence considered to be a rental? Is it when it is rented out or when it's vacated or when another becomes the primary residence?
0: So this is a good question that we get every so often in one form or another. The question basically boils down to when is a piece of real estate considered to be a rental for tax purposes? In this case, he's asking about a primary residence, but it could be any piece of property. And the general rule is once you're holding it out for rent, you know, like advertising and trying to get rentals in, that's when it's going to be considered a rental for tax purposes. We can start depreciating at that point. We can start writing off the you know carrying costs and the utilities and that kind of stuff against you know no income in the beginning, but you know rental income later in the year, perhaps. So it's it's when it's started to be held off for rent. Now, if it's a, a principal residence and you're advertising it to be rented, but you're still living in it in the meantime until you find a renter, you can't you know write it off. Then you have to wait that until you move it. out. Obviously, it needs to be basically vacant and advertised, and then you can consider it to be a rental. So you don't need to like. Not have it be a rental if a tenant moves out for a couple months and you like fix it up and then put it and then start renting it again. We just leave it as a rental the whole year. So basically, it's when it's actively being held out for rent and you're not using it personally, would be the answer. Would be the answer to that one.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Our next question is Hey Wheeler, my general understanding of the new tax law is that we will take a significant tax hit because of the loss of various deductions. What I read is that state and local taxes will be capped at $10,000 and miscellaneous deductions will be eliminated. In addition, we will lose our two personal exemptions. Is this correct? Yeah, this is a question that's come up a few times. The new tax law, we covered this in the
0: podcast on tax reform. But yeah, there's a a new cap of $10,000 and that cap applies to state income taxes deducted property taxes on your primary residence or any other personal use residences, second, third homes, fourth, fifth investment properties, that kind of stuff. And then also DMV fees as part of that as well. So a lot of taxpayers in our area are being impacted by this in California. We have high property taxes. We have high state income taxes. So the $10,000 is capping them, and that's what they're stuck at for 2018. Also going out in the tax law is the two personal exemptions. Those go away. Or, well, all personal exemptions. This person has two, but all of them go away. And what Congress did to mitigate the effects of some of this stuff is they doubled the standard deduction pretty much, or they raised it significantly to try and help out, and they added some extra child tax credits if you have uh, children qualifying for that. And there's also some there's a new credit for caring for like elderly parents and that kind of thing, but it's, pr- it's pretty small. This client ended up actually being a loser in the tax bill, unfortunately. They lost the excess over the ten thousand dollars in the state and local taxes. They lost the miscellaneous deductions, which I forgot to mention a second ago, but they don't have they can't write off like the investment manager fees anymore. They can't write off our fees for tax preparation. They can't write off just general investment expenses. Some of the clients, you know, have investment publications or those kind of things that we write off as miscellaneous itemized deductions or unreimbursed employee expenses. All those are lost now. So this client did end up worse off. Uh, another thing that was a mitigating factor, sorry, for a lot of people, is that the tax brackets have all gone down a couple percent. So people are ending up where they have higher taxable income under the new tax law but lower income tax. Just they, due to the rate. Just due to the rate going down a little bit. And then a lot of people that were in AMT before, they're in the, being big winners because the AMT thresholds raise so much that they're not paying the AMT anymore. So they may actually have higher regular income tax under the new law, but then when the AMT goes away, they end up net
1: ahead. Yeah, and you dove into the alternative minimum tax in our last podcast uh, with the individual effects of, of the tax right. changes.
0: Right, and that's a welcome change, I think, because that law was originally supposed to apply to high-income taxpayers, and it ended up kind of snagging a lot of people You know, in the, in the middle ranges of income, especially here in Bay Area and California, and so raising that threshold now makes it so it really doesn't apply to many people anymore, and it's kind of more like the original intent, I think, but... Yeah, this taxpayer ended up losing out a little bit under the new law, unfortunately. As far as things you can do to mitigate it, uh, we had people prepay the property taxes last year. That was like the no-brainer advice to give that our clients were listening to and doing. But you're losing the DMV thing now. Nothing you can do about that. If you're going to be under the standard deduction in the future, like this client actually was getting very close to being on the bubble. There's a couple pieces of advice I gave this client. One... You're over the RMD age, you can have part of your RMD from your IRA required minimum distribution as RMD. You can take part of your required distributions from your retirement plans and you can actually give them directly to charity from the trustee. So you can, you know, withdraw your RMD from Schwab basically and have Schwab give the money directly to you know XYZ 501c3 charity. That will come at the top of your income and it will reduce the amount of taxable RMD you're reporting versus having a taxable distribution from your retirement account where you show income and you get a charity deduction on the on the itemized deduction schedule later, well now you're getting the standard deduction. So you're not writing off your charitable anymore because you get the standard anyway. If you do the charity out of the RMD directly, you get to write off and, and decrease your income. You actually end up ahead by doing that. And this client also, we talked about maybe paying off the mortgage now because it was getting low anyway, even though the rate's pretty decent. If it's the standard deduction now to the itemized, you're not getting the benefit of the tax write off anymore and the mortgage interest. And even though the rate is low, if you're, if you're kind of investing more conservatively as you get older and getting closer to, you know, post retirement and that kind of stuff, you're not getting a great return maybe on some of your cash sitting there getting, you know, less than a percent in your money market fund or something. So take that money, pay off the mortgage, you save on the differential there, and you don't have debt anymore, which is nice. So you own the house free and clear. And then our our fees, which are not deductible anymore. In terms of like personal tax expense, if you have a rental or if you're self-employed at all or anything, we are allocating a portion of our fee towards those activities where it is still deductible. And we're trying to allocate as much there as possible so that we still maintain the benefit of the write-off for our fees. But the investment manager fees, we are losing those write-offs. And so there's, there's not much we can do about that right now. It's just it is what it is that that deduction lost, unfortunately.
1: So it sounds like that client and many of our clients would really benefit from some planning and, and really looking at their individual tax situation.
0: Yeah. I mean, even even if you're, you're losing under the new tax law a little bit, there's still steps and actions you can take to be more tax efficient and not lose as bad, I guess, is the best yeah. way to put it. You know? <laughs> so, so for some people, this is what it is. But we can make it a little better. We can still plan. We can still do things and take action.
1: Great. Our next question is about IRAs. It says, can you walk me through the backdoor Roth IRA situation, specifically the penalties situation if I do not undo the Roth? Yeah, this, this rule is
0: still pretty much untouched from the tax reform package. This is still one of my favorite pieces of advice that I go to with working clients that are still on the younger side and they're looking to generate substantial tax savings over a long period of time. This is actually a great example of where you may, you know, you may think that it's expensive to hire a CPA to do your taxes in the beginning because, you know, you could do it on your own TurboTax, right? And you could have the TurboTax fill out the forms and you could get the taxes pretty much the same as you would in the CPA, right? But that's a thing. You're not paying us to fill out the forms. We we are filling out the forms and we're gonna do them correctly, but you're also paying for our advice. And it's the opportunity cost of not taking advantage of the good advice over all of those years that ends up being just a huge loss of tax savings over the long term because you didn't have that advice in the beginning. And so the backdoor Roth IRA is one of my favorites because that can generate substantial tax savings over time if you start early. So when we are looking at a working couple or a working individual and they're in a relatively high tax bracket because they're in their working years, ordinary W-2 earned income, one, we want to find ways to reduce the W-2 income as much as possible. And the only real way you have to do that is by utilizing the 401k you have at work. I I generally recommend using the regular pre-tax 401k. That's going to reduce your taxable income. You're going to get immediate tax savings on that money going into the retirement account. And when you pull that money out in the future, like we've talked about on previous podcasts, you're hopefully pulling that out in retirement when you're in a lower bracket. And then you're, you're saving at a minimum on the tax rate arbitrage there, where you're putting it in high rate, you're taking it out at a low rate, and you're also getting the time value of money in the meantime of having it grow in the tax-deferred account without paying any tax. So step one, we maximize the 401k if we can. That's 18000 or I think it's 18500 now in 2018. Per, per person into the 401k. So we do that. If you're already maxing out the 401k, you can still put money into a traditional IRA when you're working. There's no income limits to funding a traditional IRA. There is for funding a Roth. You can't put money directly in a Roth if you're making over like a hundred something thousand when you're married. And if you're making a couple hundred thousand, you're, you're SOL. You can't put money directly into a Roth, but you can put money into a traditional IRA. Now there's no tax deduction for putting money into the traditional IRA. There is a phase out for that. And if you're above these income limits, which you probably are, you're not going to be able to write off putting money in the 401 or the traditional IRA. So the money going into the traditional IRA, that is after-tax dollars. There is no deduction for putting that money in. We track that after-tax dollars on your tax return. So at a minimum, if you were funding the traditional IRA and you were pulling that money out in the future in retirement, a portion of each withdrawal is going to be a return of your after-tax money. You're not going to pay tax on that when it comes out, and you will pay tax on the earnings we calculate all that on the tax return it's a just a formula pro rata amount of how much money in your traditional ira is after tax versus pre tax money and we do that but here's where the backdoor roth ira strategy comes into play if you have no other pre tax funds in your ira so if you follow our strategy and all your pre tax money's in your 401k at work and your traditional ira just has your after tax contribution which is $5500 if you're under age 50 You put that money in, you can immediately do a Roth IRA conversion. You can convert your traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. You now are moving that money into a Roth IRA. And whenever you do a conversion, you pay tax or you recognize as income, any pre-tax dollars that are moved from the traditional IRA to the Roth IRA. Because anything coming out of the Roth IRA in the future is tax-free. It's all after-tax, basically. So if you're converting pre-tax to after-tax, you have to pay tax on that conversion. But in the backdoor Roth IRA strategy, you're converting after tax to after tax. So there is so no income to recognize. And you can do that immediately. You can do that the day after you fund your traditional IRA. So you're going to have one cent of interest income earned that you're converting. You know, and the rest is going to be Roth IRA in the future. And so this is just the beauty of compounding. If you do that every year and you do that for several decades, you're going to build up a Roth IRA balance. About a few hundred thousand dollars of principal, plus earnings. You know, you're investing in the market, so the market's earning. You know, conservatively five percent a year over a long time span. I think the average is higher than that. If you're earning that, you're you probably also got a you know couple hundred thousand of earnings in there also. And if all those earnings are tax free, as opposed to being in a taxable brokerage account, you're just putting your extra savings in every year. You save that couple hundred thousand dollars times your tax rate in tax savings. By hiring a CPA and taking good advice versus doing it on your own on TurboTax, right? So that's where the difference is made. That's the value provided. It adds up over time. It seems small in the beginning, and it is, but small steps are how you get wealthy over a long period of time. Not, there's no magic formula. I mean, don't discount luck for sure. Don't disrespect money. But, you know, you can take these small steps over time, and you can really generate a lot of wealth in the future. So the backdoor to Roth IRA is one of my favorite strategies, and we try and play that as much as possible. And that's, that's what the backdoor Roth IRA strategy is.
1: That makes sense. Our next question is in regards to an inheritance. So uh, the question is, I had an aunt in India, and she passed away and left some money to my sister and me. We are not, or I'm sorry, we are trying to get it as non-resident Indians converted to dollars and sent to the U.S., question is, do I have to pay federal and state income taxes on the inheritance and should I get it all in 2018 or should I split it between 2018 and 2019?
0: People will often get an inheritance and not understand how the taxes work around an inheritance. The general rule is that an inheritance is not taxable to you, so if you inherit cash or you inherit stocks or property or, or most of things, you don't pay any tax when you get the inheritance. There are a few caveats. If you inherit a tax-deferred retirement account, like an IRA or a 401k, when you pull the money out of that, you're going to pay tax because the the, the 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 decedent, the person that died, never paid the tax on it. That makes so, so. so you pull it out when you, when you get it in retirement. But cash and stock and that kind of stuff, that's all after tax for income tax You know already when the person – Passes away. So when you inherit it, it's not taxed for income tax a second time or anything. It's, or, yeah, a second time, it's just not taxed at all. So an inheritance is generally not taxable. This client had a foreign inheritance. There's no special rules around uh, getting an foreign inheritance and that's all of a sudden taxable or anything. The only thing you have to do is some information reporting. So the answer is that you have to, if you get over $100,000 from a foreign inheritance, there's this informational form that we fill out, Form 3520, and that just declares you know, the date and the amount of the inheritance, kind of what it was. And that's pretty much it. It's a pretty basic filing.
1: It's just a reporting requirement.
0: Yeah, it's a reporting requirement, but it is, you do have to do it. And it, noncompliance can be costly. There's technically a $10,000 penalty for failure to file. So like any of the foreign stuff, you don't want to mess around with that. And, you know, you make sure you do all the reporting right. The government's very aggressive on that, but no income tax on uh, an inheritance no, no federal or state income tax. There's no estate tax that you pay as the person receiving the money. If the person's a U.S. citizen that passed away, all their assets are subject to estate tax. And if they're under the exemption threshold of now it's like 11 million bucks, they don't pay any estate tax. But it's all subject. But at the end if it's over, they do pay estate tax. Otherwise, um, there's no state income, federal income, state estate federal estate tax when you get the money. Nothing you need to worry about other than just uh, putting it to good use.
1: And in this question, he he was saying that he was going to have it converted to U.S. dollars and sent to the U.S., but what issues would be if he maintained a foreign bank account? If he maintains the foreign
0: bank account, it's, it's an asset of his now. He's inherited the account, so you have to do the foreign bank reporting every year. You get to report any balance in a foreign account uh, over $10,000. Not as a single account. If the aggregate of all your foreign accounts is over ten thousand U.S. at any time during the year, you have to report all of your foreign bank accounts. If you then go over a certain threshold, it's like hundred and fifty thousand or so. If you're married at any time during the year, of of all your foreign accounts or assets, you got to report all your foreign accounts and assets on Form eighty nine thirty eight on your return. So you have that reporting requirement as well and uh, that's pretty much it. Any income on the foreign accounts, you've got to recognize that for U.S. tax, We're taxed on a worldwide income, so you have to report your worldwide income. And the actual conversion of foreign currency to U.S. dollar doesn't trigger any sort of uh, gains or losses or anything, typically, when it's a personal transaction that's small. And if it happens right away, I mean, those rules get more complicated than they You can have income on a conversion, and you can get a non-deductible loss on a conversion and all kinds of stuff, but that's kind of beyond the scope of the question here.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Now, we have a question about IRA management fees. So this, this client has IRA management fees that are being paid out of their Schwab account, and they want to know if those fees are tax deductible.
0: So under the old law, the, the fees out of the, the, the IRA, as long as they were paid from a taxable account, were deductible. And that was a piece of advice we'd give to our clients is have the fees on your IRA for your investment advisor be paid out of your taxable account. That way you could write it off. And under the new law, those miscellaneous itemized deductions, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, those go away. So you lose the benefit of that. Although I still would consider having the fees paid from the taxable account just because if you're not draining the IRA account by that fee, it is growing a little faster and it is tax deferred still. So there's a little bit of benefit to to still doing it that way. You just don't get the deduction anymore. Got it.
1: All right, the last question we have is – Hi Wheeler, I am wondering if I can avoid an IRA distribution being taxable if I use it for a major medical expense and pay the provider directly from my IRA account. I know distributions aren't taxable if I make donations to a nonprofit directly from my IRA account, and I am hoping there is a provision like that for medical.
0: Good question. Unfortunately, no, there's no Correlating provision like the risk for the charity when we talked about already. So you can't do a direct to medical and exclude that from mm-hmm. your income. It's still going to be subject to the same seven and a half percent of your adjusted gross income limitation to write off medical expenses. But if you are under age 59 and a half and you're, you technically can't pull money out of your IRA penalty free, you get to pay a penalty 10% by pulling the money out. There are exceptions to the 10% penalty, and un, paying for medical is one of them. So oh, okay. you get to pull out for medical. Out of your IRA because you have a hardship and you just have to pull from the IRA to do it, uh, you can at least avoid the 10% penalty. So there is a little bit of silver lining there. It's also exceptions for the 10 grand you can take out for buying your first home. There's you can pay for like some tuition and that kind of stuff. There's a few exceptions to the 10% penalty and those do apply. But the only one that lets you exclude it from income is the direct to charity one. Which is a good one to utilize, especially if yeah, you are yeah taking the RMDs and you're just taking a standard deduction. I I definitely do that.
1: Great, thank you. That's all for today's episode of the Debit This Credit That podcast. As always, if you have any questions, you can contact your Wheeler accountants prepare or submit a question online at our website in the Ask Wheeler section at the bottom of the page. Please remember to follow us on social media for regular updates at Wheeler CPAs and on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening as we help you solve for accounting.